Do you, Baron Frankenstein, take this woman to be your bride? Do you promise to haunt her with old horror movies, toys, and comics? Yes, I want friend. Woman. Friend. And you, Baroness, do you take this man beast to be your lawfully bound husband? Do you promise to endure hours of unimaginable torture as he rambles about monster movies and long-dead actors? Close enough. Then by the power invested in me by Count Alucard, I now pronounce you supermates. supermates. You may bite or kiss the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Supermates, the Husband and Wife Geek Cast. I'm Chris. I'm Cindy. And I'm Andrew. Yes, today Andrew, our son Andrew, is joining us again for our final installment of The House of Frankenstein. By the time you hear this, we'll be about a week away from Halloween. And uh, we've had a lot of fun going over these great monster movies. And so we thought we'd end with a movie that celebrates all the things we love about monster movies. And that would be 1987's The Monster Squad. And The Monster Squad was released on August 14, 1987. And director Fred Decker said he came up with the concept of this. He envisioned it as an update of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but with the Universal Monsters meeting characters that were kind of modern-day versions of the Little Rascals. And I, I can see that in this movie, but I think there's some more contemporary influences, but we'll get to that after we go over the synopsis. And Decker actually co-wrote this film with uh, Shane Black, who went on to create uh, the Lethal Weapon series and write the screenplays for those movies. And he also wrote and directed Andrew's favorite superhero movie, Iron Man 3. I hate it. (laughs) Don't get me started. I won't. We won't. It's surprising. You know, they they came up with this concept. They shopped it around. Decker had had some success with uh, the movie House, or a film with William Catt and Richard Mall, and a movie called Night of the Creeps that was in production at the time. And they, uh, they shopped this around and took it to Universal because, you know, it's an update of the Universal Monsters, monsters, they passed on it, which is just insane to imagine that they would... One, why would they want somebody else making movies with particularly their version of their monsters? But they did, but anyway. Okay, Raw here. What's the deal? Yeah, what the hell's Monster Squad? It's us. We're the Monster Squad. Since when? Since now. What's a squad? It's like Miami Vice, I think. Look, I think there's monsters, like real ones. I heard my dad talking on the telephone to a guy down at the police station. There was a guy screaming he was a werewolf, and they shot him. Then the body disappeared from the corner van. The corner guy was dead. So what? He got shot and a werewolf took his body? No, you peanhead, he was a werewolf. Maybe. But if they shot him... It must have been regular bullets, not silver ones. Look, I know this will sound pretty stupid... But a mummy disappeared from the museum tonight. Mummy came in my house. And you guys, Dracula might be here too. Oh man, fat kid farted. Can't you hold it? God damn it, would you shut up? Did you hear a word I said? The guys are dead. Get a clue? Something's out there and it's killing people. And if it's monsters, nobody's gonna do a thing about it but us. 
Are we Monster Squad? Or what? How does that dog get up here anyway? The actual movie starts with a uh, title card that reads, 100 years before this story begins, it was a time of darkness in Transylvania. A time when Abraham Van Helsing and a small band of freedom fighters conspired to rid the world of vampires and monsters and to save mankind from the forces of eternal evil. They blew it! <laughs> Van Helsing and his small army attacked Castle Dracula and found a strange jeweled amulet the object of Van Helsing's quest that fateful night. A very reluctant teenage girl begins reading an incantation from Van Helsing's journal as the talisman glows with power. From beneath the stone floors, the dead rises to stop them. The spell succeeds and opens an otherworldly vortex which consumes everything around it. 100 years later, somewhere in the southern United States, we meet elementary school students, Sean and Patrick are being disciplined for spending too much school time on their monster club activities. Their friend Horace is victimized by bullies, including Kevin Arnold's brother, until the older, impossibly cool Rudy shows up to save him. Horace suggests they ask Rudy to join their club by giving him the monster test. As they walk home from school, Sean's sister Phoebe spies the man they call Scary German Guy, peering from his window and flees in fear. In the skies nearby, an airplane is carrying some very unusual cargo, two dead bodies. When one of the pilots investigates some mysterious noises, he finds one of the boxes, a coffin, open, and is soon confronted by Dracula himself. The Prince of Darkness looks longingly at a large crate marked Bavaria Frankenstein. The pilot releases the lower bay doors, and the two crates drop from the plane into the swamp below while Dracula transforms into a bat and follows. Sean and his friends hold the next meeting of their monster club in the large treehouse behind his home. I would have loved to have that when I was a kid. Mm. Anyway, um, there with junior member Eugene and his dog Pete, they administer the monster test to Rudy, who is more interested in the teenage girl in undressing next door, who just happens to be Patrick's sister. Peepee Tom. Later, Sean's mother Emily gives him a journal purchased from a yard sale. It's Van Helsing's diary, said to have come from the old house on Shadowbrook Road. Unfortunately, the book is written in German. Tensions run high in Sean's home when his father, Dell, is called into work by his detective partner, Rich, canceling the marriage counseling session he and Emily were scheduled to attend. As Rich leaves the police station, a crazed man claiming to be a werewolf demands to be locked up. His pleas unheard, he attacks the officers and is shot and apparently killed. Meanwhile, Dell and Rich investigate the disappearance of a 2,000-year-old mummy from the local museum. Unknown to Dell, the mummy is on the loose, shambling through town. In a coroner's van heading for the morgue, the man who claimed to be a werewolf is proven right, and under the full moon he transforms into a ferocious beast, killing the van's driver and escaping. He and the mummy converge on the swamp where they meet Dracula, seemingly able to control these mindless monsters. Dracula commands the creature from the Black Lagoon to salvage the submerged crate. Inside rests the body of Frankenstein's monster. And harnessing lightning via jumper cables in his cane, Dracula revives him. That night, amidst the sounds of a violent lightning storm outside and a domestic dispute between his parents inside, 
Sean finds a note from his mother. It seems a Mr. Alucard has called about Van Helsing's book and is willing to buy it. Having watched hundreds of horror movies, Sean quickly deduces Alucard is an anagram of Dracula. In his own home, Eugene finds the mummy in his room, although his father refuses to believe him. At their next meeting, Sean christens their club the Monster Squad, convinced that a werewolf, a mummy, and Dracula are in town, and seemingly after the book he possesses. In the abandoned Antebellum Mansion at 666 Shadowbrook Road, Dracula commands the Frankenstein monster to seek the children, take the book, and kill them if necessary. Desperate to decipher Van Helsing's diary, Sean, Patrick, and Horace seek out scary German guy, who they find to be no monster and quite helpful. Reading the journal to the boys, he describes an amulet that represents pure good. It is invulnerable save for one night every 100 years. If destroyed at the stroke of midnight on that night, the balance between good and evil will tip, and evil will reign over the world. But to counter its vulnerability during this time, there is a ceremony that can be held, which will open a portal into limbo and suck all evil into it forever. Van Helsing's last entry puts that date as 100 years from tomorrow's date. As the boys plot on what to do next, Phoebe introduces them to her new friend, Frankenstein's monster. Initially scared for their lives, Phoebe eventually convinces them that Frankie is a nice guy, and he soon becomes an honorary member of the squad, despite his master's orders. That night, Dracula finds the amulet in the bowels of the mansion, but it is protected by crucifixes, and he is unable to retrieve it. The next day, the squad goes into action via an 80s music montage. Rudy makes wooden stakes and silver bullets and steals equipment from the school archery team. Patrick makes business cards with the club name on them. Eugene writes a letter to the army warning them of the monsters. Sean nervously watches the clock while Phoebe plays with Frankie in the clubhouse. Early that evening, Dracula converses with a seemingly drugged but human werewolf before the Lord of the Undead snacks on three young co-eds. But the wolfman was faking his intoxicated state and escapes. As the full moon rises, he calls to warn Dale of the impending crisis and that Dracula is out to kill his son. But the transformation then takes hold. Sean, Horace, Eugene, and Frankie converge on the mansion, while Patrick and Rudy conspire to rope in Patrick's sister as their necessary virgin. As Sean goes over their plan, Creature steals Eugene's Twinkie. Our heroes enter the house just as Dracula detonates dynamite to free the amulet below. The explosion rocks the old foundations of the mansion and Frankie is buried beneath the rubble. The boys are attacked by the wolfman, but luckily he has nards and Horace is a good kicker. The wolfman's got nards. Fleeing from Dracula and his vampire brides, Sean discovers the amulet only to be confronted by the vampire who demands he hand it over. Horace's garlic pizza wards him off, and the boys make their escape with the talisman in hand. Monster Squad reassembles, and thanks to Phoebe enlisting the aid of Scary German Guy, they take off in his jeep, headed for the church in Town Square, where they will perform the ceremony. On the way there, their vehicle is attacked by the mummy, but Rudy's arrows make short work of him. Responding to the Wolfman's call, Dale and Rich head the Shadowbrook Road, but soon turn around in pursuit of Dracula's phantom hearse. At Sean's home, Dracula destroys the clubhouse with dynamite. When Dell and Rich arrive, he blows up their police car with Rich inside. Dell fires on the fiend, but the bullets do not faze him. Dracula decrees that he will have Dell's son and flies off in bat form. 
Dale manages to raise Sean on his walkie-talkie and heads to town square to meet them. There the squad finds the church lock and begin their ceremony outside. The onslaught of the damned begins, and Rudy asserts his club membership by quickly dispatching the vampire brides with bow and wooden stakes. Scary German guy helps Patrick's sister in reciting the German incantation. Dell arrives in time to wing an incoming Dracula who crashes through an upper window of a sporting goods store. Dell follows and nearly destroys the vampire with his own dynamite until the Wolfman intervenes and assaults him. With Sean's help, Dell manages to blow the Wolfman to pieces with the dynamite. Patrick's sister finishes the spell, but nothing happens. She admits to not being a virgin, and all hope seems lost. Having not been disposed of properly, the Wolfman somehow magically revives and decimates the local police force until Rudy finally dispatches him with a silver bullet. Eugene suggests they try the spell with Phoebe, and Scary German Guy begins helping her with the incantation. Horace holds his ground and kills the creature with a borrowed police shotgun, impressing the town bullies who torment him. Dracula, commanding the very weather itself, approaches Phoebe. The police are barely a distraction to him as he slowly plows through their ranks. When the Prince of Darkness demands the amulet and threatens Phoebe, Frankie reappears and calls bogus. He knocks the vampire away, where he is impaled on a decorative pike in the churchyard. Phoebe and scary German guys finish the spell, the portal opens, and the entire town begins to be pulled inside the vortex. Dracula grabs Sean as the two head toward the swirling hole. Sean manages to stake the Prince of Darkness when suddenly Van Helsing appears from the portal, and the two struggle as they are sucked into the whirlpool. Unfortunately, Frankie is also pulled into the singularity as a tearful Phoebe begs him not to go. She throws her stuffed animal scraps to him, and he says his goodbyes. The portal closes, and the town is quiet once more. Having gotten Eugene's letter, the army arrives, and a confused commanding officer asks what happened. Sean tells him they know, and when the general asks who they are, Sean answers quite confidently, We're the Monster Squad. Then a really bad rap song starts. <laughs> yeah. The opening in Castle Dracula, there's a lot of similar elements to Todd Browning's Dracula with Bela Lugosi. You get armadillos, you get possums. Later we'll see a female vampire feasting on a possum. Uh, those were some weird creatures that they, you know, especially the armadillo. Why in the world was there an armadillo in, in Transylvania? But mm. So that's why it's in here. You see, even see a skeleton on a pike, which is a nice nod to Vlad the Impaler. Vlad the Impaler, yeah. yeah. And there's this really, uh, you know, you get this neat scene of all these bats up in the ceiling of the of Dracula's crypt. And, and there's this huge bat, animatronic bat, um, that's Dracula. And it's it's really, you know, quite well done. It, it kind of reminds me, do you remember the Grigori toy? No. It was, a, it was a large, like, rubbery plastic bat. It was made by Mattel. And it had... You, the inside of it, you could see its chest. It had a translucent cover, and you could, like, squeeze him and pump blood through him. That's gross. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that it sounds reminds, awesome. That's what it reminded <laughs> me of. The the transformation that when they center on his hands and you see, like, the skin between his fingers, like mm -hmm. the bat wings, that's, that's really well done. And then you get your first look at, at Duncan Rager's Dracula, and he's got the, you know, regal classic look that's obviously based more on Lugosi's look, but even more so on kind of the general Halloween Dracula image that 
has come up since Lugosi. Right. And that's kind of really, in a way, what this movie, a lot of what this movie is. It's it's the idea of these monsters as an entity together, uh, the merchandising of it, the the Aurora model kits, the famous monsters of film land, the Rimco figures, the AHI figures, things like that. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, that, and that's, that's what's cool. It's like, it's a monster kid in Fred Decker making a movie the way he perceives the monsters even beyond the way they actually were on film. Rager has actually got a semi-comic credit. He played Zorro in the 90s TV series that was on the, then the Family Channel. It's ABC Family now. And he's got a memorable role on Star Trek Next Generation in the Beverly Crusher-centered, uh, I think it's called Sub Rosa, about the Yeah, the where ghost. she goes back to her grandmother's planet. And yeah, in the the uh, the Irish uh, colony there. And the, he's a quote-unquote ghost. Yeah. Or uh, an energy vampire. Yeah, well, yeah, he is, too. Because he lives off the energy of, of the our women. family members. Yeah. That's true. So I guess he's kind of a vampire there, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See? Yeah. Good point. Go, now, you know, Van Helsing and the, his crew attack the castle, and the ambulance just, like, sitting out in the middle of the the castle. Like, So why didn't he, like, you know, hide it or something? <laughs> you know, put it in his coffin, maybe. Yeah, I mean. But, okay, let's just do this so we can have the movie. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe because it was pure good. He never, like, snatches it from anybody in the film. So I wonder if he maybe can't, like, really touch it. You know what I mean? Maybe that's, maybe that's the thing. Maybe it was placed there and it has to stay there. I he don't took know. took it from Sean, though. He never grabs it. I don't think. I, I, when I watch and rewatching the film, I don't think he does. But maybe he did, but I didn't. I, did, I was trying to watch that because even when... He when when Sean grabs it, we're jumping ahead. But when Sean grabs it later, and he's like, "Give me the amulet," he's shaking the crud out of Sean, but he's not taking it from him. And then Horace gets him with the pizza. Mm. So I don't know. We're maybe we're way overthinking this. There's no week, Kimosani. <laughs> I'm way overthinking this. So you know the uh, the Van Helsing character. It's always interesting to me to see how they portray Van Helsing, and he's played by a character actor named Jack Gwillem, who's been in everything. And uh, he's he's pretty no nonsense. He's he's screaming at the poor girl who seems <laughs> she may be there against her will as she reads the incantation. And then of course the dead rise up through the floor. And I, I miss practical skeletons. You know, you just ain't gonna get that in a movie nowadays. These would all be CGI. And, mm. You know, and in a few years, you know, they look probably look good when it comes out. But in a few years, they look really fake. So one thing that kind of always bothered me about this movie, especially the way they describe the vortex. It's supposed to aid good uh, in surviving through that night, the, through the vulnerable times. So why does it suck everything in it? You know, why doesn't it just suck evil into it? Right, because, I mean, Van Helsing's inside of it. Because right, everyone's right. got a little evil in them. Maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know if fences and cars have evil in them. You know, I don't know. <laughs> hey, the gas, dude. Uh, just one more thing. If this was Peter Cushing's Van Helsing, this movie would have ended in the first, like, six minutes. Because he would have succeeded. Yeah. That's just all i got to say about that. Does it bother anyone that, that Sean, who's played by Andre Gower, and Patrick, who's played by Robbie Kiger, also call Horace Fat Kid? I know. He's <laughs> supposed to be their friend. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I did, we get got names like that at my school. 
They're not nice for each other like that. That's not nice. That's, uh, yeah. Horace, speaking of Horace, who's, who's played by Brent Chalum, he is, when he's seen reading a comic book, that is Wonder Woman, Volume 2, Number 3, from April 1987. That was like the uh, third issue of the George Perez run. Hmm. Uh, you can clearly see it when uh, Wayne Arnold, uh, I mean uh, EJ, uh, <laughs> rips it up. Uh, <clears throat> so, speaking of EJ, he's played by Jason Hervey, who... Apparently was doomed to play a-hole children. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen him ever in anything where he wasn't a butthead. The only thing I can think of is when they did Hawk and Dove on Justice League Unlimited, they stunt-casted him and Fred Savage, who, of course, played his brother Kevin on The Wonder Years, but they switched their roles. Jason Hervey was Dove, and and Fred Savage was Hawk, so he was the a-hole. <laughs> Yeah, but you weren't looking at him, so that was purely visual. So you know, yeah, maybe it's just his looks. He just scream, you know. There's some he's people just got that, that have, he's got that permanent, as Andrew calls it, mo face. Yeah. Well, or it's like that thing we've talked about about some women have you know resting b i t c h face. Yeah, you know, maybe he just has resting a hole face. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> In the documentary on the DVD, which there's, if you don't have the DVD of the Monster Squad, there's a really great multi part documentary on there that really goes tells you everything you ever wanted to know about the production of the movie but Fred Decker the director says that they have gotten over the years quite a bit of flack over the way the kids talk especially some of the derogatory terms they use for each other and I was 12 years old at that time and I mean I'm the same age as those kids at that time that's pretty accurate it is now, still. And we do worse than that. <laughs> Don't tell me that. I'm your mother. I'm sitting right here. I, I, I mean, I realize it's probably the truth, but no. Yeah, we don't want to know about it. Uh, the mystically cool Rudy appears, played by Ryan Lambert. And I'm sorry. I thought he was the cutest thing. No, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought he was the cutest thing. Yeah, I, Girls like the bad boys. Yeah. You know, he's in... in you, but, you know, and he even says this on the... On the documentary, too, you know, why is he hanging out with these guys? I mean, why does he want to? It's it's kind of like Fonzie. Why did he want to hang out with Richie and Ralph and Potsy, especially? Yeah. You know. Because he wants to know how it feels like to have true friends. I guess. And, you know, but, you know, and much like Fonzie did, he kind of steals the movie in a lot of ways. Sean and Patrick are walking home after the, after the school scene. And even then, they start talking about Wolfman genitalia, which is, you know, going to be a theme here. It, you know, it, every neighborhood when you're a kid has a at least one scary German guy. There's always somebody on the road on your street or something that you're kind of, you know, I don't know about that. We, yeah. I had a whole uh, rest home of scary German guys up the street for me when I was a kid. There were some, some. Uh, they probably weren't creepy, but they kind of they scared me when I was a kid. They were always walking by the house. You know, a lot of times in these movies with kids, the little kid actors are just, you know, they're they're there. They got to be a little kid, and 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 they're usually like really horrible actors. Right. But Ashley Banks as Phoebe is is adorable. I mean, she comes across as a legitimate little five year old girl, and she seems real. And she actually reminds me a lot of Danny, our daughter. Yeah. So she does. Yeah, I like I like. However, her. if Danny ever said. Come on, you chicken shits. I think I wash her mouth out with soap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you asked me when we were watching this, like, now how did Dracula 
get on the same plane as the body of the Frankenstein monster. Uh-huh. So, well, I, I get the feeling that, you know, Dracula's planning all this stuff. And in a way, this part of the plot is very, very similar to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Oh, this was very sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. You know, the scene where Dracula is on the plane and the pilot opens the bay doors. I, I like that scene. It's it's kind of weird that his cape falls off and that he, but I like the. And it doesn't make the sense. Cape does not the cape ruins the scene. Mm. It's like okay, uh, I'm gonna take off my scene. cape now. Well, the wind grabbed it and pulled it off. No, it did. No, it didn't. Stop trying to make excuses. No, it did. That's what it was when he opened the door, of the bay door that sucked the cape out. His clothes would have came off. No, that wouldn't have came off. But here's here's the part that gets me. He flies out into the sunlight. It's daytime. <laughs> and it doesn't look like it's night for day shots. It's filmed as daytime. But maybe this track can take sunlight, but later on they say that that's one way to kill a vampire. Right. I mean, the only thing I that's can figure is they're saying, you know, if he's in bat form, it doesn't affect him as much or something like maybe. that. But I've never, you know, I don't know. That is a problem. The cape's what makes the sunlight affect him. That's why I took it off. Oh, Yeah. We talked about how much we'd love to have the clubhouse. I'd still like to have a clubhouse like that. I want a clubhouse. The the, the interior of the, you know, the interior of the clubhouse, I mean, if you really look, it's got, I mean, it's obviously got, like, really awesome old monster posters, and and one of them that sticks out at you is Hammer's Vampire Circus. It's like the greenish-blue with the big vampire face. And uh, there's lots of toys and model kits and Ben Cooper Halloween costumes that actually come into the plot later. And it, it's just a, like a monster kid's dream in there. And, but, you know, and you, you meet Eugene and his dog Pete. and you, But you do have to wonder now, how did he get in the club? You know, is it just because he's into monsters? He's awful mm-hmm. young to be hanging out with well, kids. He reads that, those books all the time. Yeah, because yeah, his, his dad gets on him later yeah, about it. They talk about ways to kill a werewolf and... And that's going to come up later, you know, because they, they say there's another way to kill a werewolf and Rudy says a silver bullet and they don't, they can't come up with another reason. Silver cane. Yeah, silver cane, silver yeah. something. We see meet Sean's mom, Emily, and she's actually played by Mary Ellen Trainer, who played Sean Astin's mother in The Goonies, which we'll come back to that later. You wanted to know where Dracula got the hearse. I mean, you know. <laughs> he bought it at a car dealership. Yeah, it, did did he, you know, did he have a ship from Transylvania? If, if this was happening now, Drac would be a celebrity uh, guest client on one of those custom hot rod shows. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you see Dracula in his car, there's this c- cool scene where there's a lightning flash where you see his face turn into a skull, which is kind of weird, but... Uh, it's just kind of... I mean, it's one of those things that's a neat effect, but at the same time, it just really doesn't... It's, it, it's a neat effect, but it's really... Totally unnecessary. There's maybe a little indulgent on yeah, the effects yeah. guys part. Well, this was a big effects, you know, practical effect movie. So, you know, it's it's funny. It's, this is 1987, and Dell and Sean's discussion of the Groundhog Day series, it mirrors what we now think about the slasher films of the 80s, like the Friday the 13th and the, the Nightmare on Elm Street. And those movies weren't terribly deep into their runs at that point. I think probably... So off the top of my head, I'm thinking part six for Friday the 13th, maybe. And, and and Nightmare on Elm Street might be up to three. 
So it's not like that was, that's not as much of a cliche then as it was now. So these guys were kind of ahead of their time mm. saying these movies were going to be, you know, thought of that way. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this guy's right name right. Stephen Mott, who, who plays Dell, he is the father of Gabriel Mott, who played the, the role in Frank Miller's universally malign adaptation of the spirit. He was the spirit in that movie. I have not seen that. I just can't bring myself to it. What's even weirder is doing research on IMDb. He was heavily considered for the role of John Luke Picard. Stephen or Gabriel? Stephen. Oh, okay. uh, Dell here. Okay. Yeah. Now, can you imagine? I can't imagine a guy that's farther away from Patrick Stewart than this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking about a totally different take on the character. Sean's parents are having some serious domestic trouble, and and that seems really real for a movie that doesn't take itself very seriously most of the time. There's some nice character bits. You know, you've got that one, and I don't know if you've got it in the notes later, but about the scary German guy, you know, there's a bit there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there there are moments that, yeah, pull you back into the real world, and I I kind of like that. The Wolfman's humid side, you know, you see him, he comes to the police station, and he's telling him to lock him up, and and he's a lot more aggressive than than Larry Talbot. But he looks I, like a drug dealer. <laughs> it, well, he's got those crazy eyes, and you yeah, know, bags yeah. and stuff, and his hair's all messed up. I, but the the Wolfman's humid side, he, he's he's a lot more aggressive than than Larry Talbot. I I would have liked to have seen Lon Chaney rough up a, a precinct full of cops because he really knew how to shake somebody up. Well, I mean, Lon Chaney is a big man. Yeah, he was, yeah. I mean, he roughs up. Evelyn Anchors and then roughs up Abbott and Costello, you know, so it's been, it been fun to see him do it. The Mummy doesn't get a lot to do in this film, but I really like his design. I mean, they must have got somebody that, like super tiny because he really looks like a shriveled up the, yeah. Yeah, corpse. I mean, you know, it's, it's a fun. like the guy that they got to play Steve Rogers' stunt devil. Right, exactly. You yeah, know, that's somebody the, emaciated. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, his, his little, you know, his little shriveled up body. Yeah, it's, it's a far cry from speaking of Chaney from... His rather thick uh, chorus, you know. Yeah. <laughs> when we're when we're inside the uh, the van, the ambulance meat wagon going to the oh, morgue, okay. you hear them call for Ackerman control. Well, that's a reference to Forrest J. Ackerman, who was the editor and founder of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Oh, okay. I remember you saying, "Oh, when we were watching yeah, it." But I... Right, Ackerman, and he was like a huge. He was a huge. He's he's the guy that. He is the person that coined the phrase sci-fi for science fiction. The effects of the Wolfman's transformation are great, but I'll be honest, I just don't really care for the Wolfman. He couldn't even move his neck like Michael Keaton when he wore that rubber suit. (laughs) I mean, he was like, he had to turn his whole body. Yeah. And I just didn't like his, he kind of had more of a, his snout looked too rat-like and his... His cheekbones and his eyes were just too broad. His face was too broad. They should have stopped, like, in the middle of his transformation. Yeah, well, even on the DVD cover, the Anchor Bay DVD cover, he's it's a mid-transformation wolf man, not, uh, not the final one. Then we, we see uh, Sean is out on the roof of his house watching the uh, Groundhog Day movie, and his dad comes out there with Burger King, which there's a lot of product placement for Burger King in this movie, and... Uh, they're sitting up there, and it's in the middle of a lightning storm. Now, yeah. I can see a kid being dumb enough to do that, but his dad ought to know better. <laughs> and a cop 
you know, public safety and all that. Yeah, yeah. When the monsters converge in the swamp, Dracula holds out this cane uh, to the Wolfman, and it, it kind of looks a little bit like the Wolfman's cane. It's I know, I thought head. that when I was like, oh, wait. Yeah, I, th- I think that's just a bit of a nod to it. I don't think it's meant to be. That makes sense how he could control the Wolfman, though. Yeah, well, I like guess. But, you know, he he's... Uh, Dracula seems to be... You know, he's easily in command of these monsters, but they're all pretty mindless, so... He's got that mind control power thing. Yeah, so, I mean, they'd be easily influenced. The creature design is just a great update. It was awesome, dude. Yeah, I I really, really like that. I mean, I I don't like it better than the original creature, but it's it's a great way to update it. I don't think they could come up with a better update if they wanted to... Doing the amount of changing to it. I mean, it uh, it looks a little bit like I, I didn't. I was going to look that up. I don't know. There's a little bit of it reminds me of the Predator, the way the mouth is, just a little bit. Mm. And I think that's around the same time. I don't know if somebody copied it, one copied the other. But now you laughed, Cindy. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Pulling out jumper cables <laughs> out of a cane. Come on, that's just ridiculous. Oh, I'm going to pull these little wolf ears out and make a. You know, a lightning rod. I mean, that's just stupid. He was prepared. It's stupid. <laughs> it's stupid and laughable and just, what the frick? You had another, what did you want to say about the creature? You had something else you want to say. I feel sorry for the creature. It is a great design. It's a wonderful update. But he is literally the Aquaman of the group. <laughs> he has one part in the movie and then they kill him at the end. Boom, he's well, dead. Not- now times, New 52. Now he actually does things. <laughs> I'm just saying, he is the Super Friends Aquaman of the group. The opinions of Cindy and Andrew do not reflect the opinions of Chris, who would like to stay on the Power Records podcast with Rob Kelly. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> and while, while Frankenstein's monster's lying in the crate, he looks more Karloff-like than he does when you see him up and running around. I think it's because you can't see the top of his head as well. I don't know. I mean, I wonder. I'd like to see what what the shooting schedule was. If maybe that was an earlier makeup, and then they did the other. And, mm. You know, that's what I maybe. I kind of got out of it. Maybe it that was be. an earlier makeup that they did, or maybe the regular person was off that day. Well, it might it be following. I mean, the Universal monsters, even within the movie, if you watch from scene to scene, their makeups change quite a bit. I mean, that's what just, I was wondering. Just, I mean, if you really pay attention to them, because. Yeah. Because the way it's because of the way they were built up back then and stuff, so it would be a nice little unintentional homage there. He's got Frankenstein's got the bolts in his head instead of his neck, and and that's basically to get around Universal. I mean, people have been doing that for years. Mego did it, right? You know, and it's just how you get around their their design. Emily lights a candle for Phoebe in her room, and it wasn't until watching it this time that you and me caught it. It shows up again later. Andrew's like, "You don't even catch that." Yes. Well, I mean, it's right there. Like, the camera puts emphasis on it. Ooh, and, emphasis. Yeah, we learned that in oh, art class. Oh, our taxes. Oh, my gosh. Our taxes for school education. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it does. It, and, it, and they were like, whoa. <laughs> so, Sean gets a note from Mr. Alucard. You, you can't make a Dracula movie in modern times without the word Alucard, the name. it, But I got to say that Sean figures it out quicker than Peter Cushing did in Dracula AD That's 1972. 
That's just wrong. Johnny Alucard. Johnny Alucard. <laughs> if you've got a spare couple two hours one Saturday night, do something else. <laughs> you liked it. <laughs> you liked it. Now, uh, uh, Eugene's room is he's full of great comic decor. You have a Mike Zek Punisher poster. And I think that is, well, we see that one later. And and then you see, this is during the mummy sequence. You see, uh, I think it's a Jim Steranko History of Comics poster. But why was the mummy in, in Eugene's house? I don't know what the purpose there was. I want to see what it looks like when he's climbing through the window. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you do that? Because you see how he walks. What does he do? Just like roll himself through the window? <laughs> I don't know. Now you think he'd come unraveled. Uh, <laughs> Dracula had already called Sean's home, so you got to assume he knows where it's now, at. Maybe they, the mummy just didn't take. Were they neighbors? Maybe they. Yeah, I'm sure they were. That's yeah. I'm, I get the impression that they're that they're all fairly close to one another, and and Sean's house is kind of central, and that's why they meet. And it's along the river back there too, or the creek, or whatever it is. So then Sean, you know, has this meeting where they he names him the Monster Squad, and he's appealing to him, and he. Even's cussing at him because, you know, they're screwing around. But, but they break it up with a fart joke because mm. they're kids, you know. Right. So, <laughs> we do that all the time. I'm usually the one who farts, though. Yeah. A Thanks. fart joke, not a fart. Yeah, no. Uh, no, no, Fat, fat Kid, kid farted. farted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so Dracula comes down to tell the Frankenstein monster what he wants him to do. And... Uh, the actor Tom Noonan that plays the monster, he, he really plays him as like as like a mentally challenged person. I mean, that's the way you get mm. how he portrays him. Probably more so than even Karloff. And reportedly he stayed in character through the entire movie shoot. He didn't he didn't fraternize with the kids or any of the other cast. And to be honest, he kinda of come comes across as kind of a butt on the D V D commentaries. <laughs> it's like he's Did no one like him or something. I, I mean he just kinda of comes across as I'm doing those. it my way. I don't care if you're my boss, I still don't care. I'm gonna do it the way he, I want to. He kinda of comes across as I mean, he, he's he's definitely one of those method actors that mm. you know, that it, he kinda of come across as a stereotypical method actor, in fact, that he's like, you know, so probably he does a, a great actor and does a tremendous job, but it's probably nobody you want to hang around with. No. Um, of course, Frankenstein approaches Phoebe near the the river. That's definitely a call back to Karloff oh, yeah. and the little girl. That scared me when I first saw it. I thought he was going to throw her in. Yeah, we know how that ended the first oh, go around. Gosh. They do a good job of making scary German guys seem scary. I mean, that first shot of his face when He's they turn around. He's got a fish face. When they, <laughs> but, I, but I like that, that he turns out to be a nice old man and, and, and a hero. That is a, if they would went for him, they'd all been screwed. Screwed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, they, you know, that the, the... Like we referenced earlier, you know, they show the focus on his concent, concentration camp tattoo, you know, mm-hmm. that... You know, there are real monsters out there. And so, you, you know, they say something like, you sure know a lot about monsters. And he says, now that you say it, I suppose I do. And he shuts the door and you see it. And that's all they, they do with it. It's, yeah, it, that's the that's it. And I mean, I, you remember that. Yeah, it, that sticks out. And amongst all this craziness, that that reminds us of something very real and, and horrifying. The kids give, uh, when they get the Frankie up into the clubhouse, Rudy hands him a, a Ben Cooper Frankenstein mask. And 
when he he replies, "I'm scary." That's just that, that pulls your heart straight. He touches him. his face, and yeah, it's just yeah, you really do. I mean, more so than I, you know. And again, you know, in a way, this movie, you know, monster kids do sympathize with the Frankenstein monster. A lot of kids uh, identified with them because they, because of the things they liked and stuff, they felt ostracized like he was. Mm -hmm. And he was a sympathetic character, but he also killed a lot of people. Right. So in this version, he's just a sympathetic character because right. this is the monster kid approved and, and, you know, kids that grew up with monster stuff. Dracula finds the amulet in the, man, in the whatever bowels of the mansion. But it's surrounded by crucifix, crucifixes. But, you know, can he just send the wolfman or the mummy or the creature in after it? I mean, you know? Right, right. I mean. But, I, you know, like he, like he got noted here, is it because it's pure good? Can, so yeah, maybe they, none of them can touch it. Because, I mean, traditionally, those creatures aren't warded off by religious symbols, just vampires. But maybe it's the whole pure good thing. Then you get an 80s music montage when they go off to do what they need to do to prepare. And it's got a really bad pop song. But it gets stuck in your head. Not as bad as the song at the end. No. Uh, well, I've got one thing to say. Um, this was before that. Frankie's walk with the kids in the setting sunlight is very... It's like E.T. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah definitely. And there's a lot of... Well, we'll get... We'll, We'll get to that at the end. There's a lot of similarities between that and some of some contemporary movies from that time with kids. The the music, the score in the movie, which is by Bruce Broughton, is really good. I really like it. It really enhances the movie. But they, there are some really bad bad pop songs in it, and they're they're by um, Michael Cimbello, who did uh, the Maniac song in Flashdance, which you know you think you'd know better, but no, apparently not. So we see we see Sean's room when he's getting up in the morning. He has a poster with Fantastic Four number one on his bedroom wall. And getting back to another E.T. scene during that montage, Phoebe's dressing Frankie up in girly clothes and hats and stuff. Right. That is directly E.T. I mean... It's a ripoff from it. Yeah, it's a ripoff. It is a ripoff of E.T. Yeah, but I don't know if it's so much of a ripoff, but... If a little girl, I mean, I'm sorry, but if you went into Danny's room and acted like you would be willing, I mean, honey, you'd be in pearls and a boa before the end of the afternoon. <laughs> it's just what little girls do. Yeah, if you're willing to sit there, they'll, you know, pretty up. No, I guess. So, you know. I don't know. I'm not a girl. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, it's how things are. So, let me see Eugene when he's writing a letter to the Army. He's got a... John Romita Spider-Man poster, and you pointed out, I never noticed it before, Hulk wallpaper. Uh -huh. you, you caught that, Cindy. Uh, he's got uh, Godzilla toy, My Pet Monster, which was a 80s stuffed monster toy, and a Star Wars Snowspeeder, so he's got some cool toys in there. Yeah, I know. Uh, he is actually played by Michael Faustino, and he is the younger brother of David Faustino that played Bud Bundy on Married with, with Children. Children. Yeah. Rudy makes uh, silver bullets in shop class, and then actually—I'm sorry, <laughs> but this is the point I had about that. Why on earth would a high school shop class have bullet molds? <laughs> well, 
least he tries to hide it. <laughs> at least he's not, hey guys, look, I'm making bullets. <laughs> yeah, but why, why, why was that available in a high school shop class? Well, I got the impression he brought that in with him, but he needed the smelting equipment to... Where does he get cigarettes? He's got all this <laughs> crap at his house, I bet. But yeah, I, I, I kind of got the impression that he just needed the silver. He didn't... He didn't the, the smelting equipment. He didn't need. He didn't get the. Why did he just have the bullet, bullet mold? Thing, man. The bullet mold. From he that. just had a bullet mold at his then house. Then why did he just leave it laying there? I don't oh, know. but it reminded me of of when Peter Cushing did it. We have a lot of Peter Cushing references in this, but the Satanic Rites of Dracula when he was making the silver bullet. <sighs> anyway, even though the world's about to end. Rudy still has time to develop the, the pictures of Patrick's sister. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're talking about, you know, yeah. what, Rudy, if the other kids are 12, he's probably, what, what 14? Yeah. You know, any 14-year-old boy is going to go 14, after... 14, 15, yeah. Yeah, he's going to be 14, 15. He's gonna, if he's got pictures of tits, he's going to go find them. Cindy! Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to cut that out since he's in this Okay. <laughs> bad. Yeah, well, now you're being bad. Sorry. Uh, Any 14-year-old boy is going to want to see pictures of a woman, you know. Yeah, all right. And, but they show the kids all, Frankie's got the, the picture and they're all jumping for it. But it shows Patrick jumping for it. So is he trying to defend his sister's honor by getting a hold of it? Or yeah. His sister's just like they're raising the roof or something. Yeah, uh, Phoebe's just yeah. dancing. She doesn't know what they're doing, yeah. The, the, I really like the scene where Dracula talks to the supposedly drug but, but still human wolf man. Uh, it it really you know highlights how Rager took on the character. He's got he's got this urbane air to him, and and he's witty, and he's he's you know he's gentlemanly. But then he just you know turns and goes into a closet full of coeds to vampirize him. So he's he's equal parts Lugosi and Lee, which is where he said he how he kind of approached it. And I, and I like that. That's a nice uh, synthesis there of, of the, the two best Draculas. And again, we said the Wolfman, Wolfman looks better mid-transformation when he's calling Dell to warn him. Uh, they, it's really cool. It is cool, though, when he shatters the phone booth and comes running out of there. So <laughs> the creature steals uh, Eugene's Twinkie. Well, we know that supervillains love Hostess Twinkies. I mean, if there's hundreds of comic book ads that tell us that monsters and supervillains... Love, Hostess, Twinkies, and mm-hmm. Fruit Pies. So, you know, maybe they should have just gathered up the Twinkies and threw them at them and stopped them. <laughs> oh, my God. Played a trail into the vortex. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, real cream filling. <laughs> and they are evil, so they'd be sucked in with them. Yeah, that's true. They survive. Cause we there know. you go, like roaches. <laughs> yeah. Dracula, he sure likes dynamite in this movie. I mean, he's... It, it's kind of a mundane thing for him to use, but I, I guess it shows he's just about you know getting the job done. He, he doesn't care, you know, <laughs> as long as it gets what he wants. The Dracula, the, the dynamite goes off, and he's he's right next to it. I, I I guess you have to assume that slowed him down just a little bit. Maybe that's why it took him a while to get up upstairs into the house to chase the kids. Of course, the most famous line in the film is. Wolfman's got nards. 
It's a great scene, and, and Brent, it's my favorite scene, son. Yeah, Brent Callum, he really does look like he just wails on those things. I mean, it looks like he just comes up and just, I mean, just it hurts. <laughs> Every guy knows. I feel it hurts. sorry for him. <laughs> so then the kids are getting chased in the hallway, and and uh, they do the whole secret lever thing, and and that's kind of a Scooby Doo moment when they're oh, all coming yeah. at them, the different monsters and. the course they're going really slow but you know but and then dracula comes up on him like we said gets a hold of sean when after he grabs the amulet horace using the pizza pulling the pizza out of his backpack that that's that's a very kid solution yeah but when he puts the pizza on him his hand goes and then just comes back like really slow he's like animatronic on i mean and i was like really i mean this makes sense yeah well so the, the kids meet up with the scary German guy, and they're on the road, and, and the mummy attacks him, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> Rudy gets a piece of his uh, of his uh, wrappings and and attaches it to the the arrow and shoots it into a tree. He's a real good shot, by the way, shooting from a you know moving jeep. But uh, the way he unravels, it's it's a really well done effect. I mean, you see all this dust and. And when it gets up into his stomach, you even see like a dried up innards and yeah. things as it falls out. But it's 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 really neat way to get rid of. Them. We see Emily back the at the house, the mother, and she looks like she's leaving Dell. You know, but you know, but you gotta kind of wonder was she planning on taking her, her kids? And I mean, it's like at that moment, right before that, they say it's twenty minutes to midnight. Okay, where is your five year old? Uh-huh. It's bad enough that your 12-year-old's out running around, but your 5-year-old is not in the house at 22 midnight. Maybe she knows he's with, she's with Scary German She guy. doesn't, but they don't know yeah. Scary German guy. Dracula is pissed. <laughs> he rips the back off the hearse and blows up the clubhouse. I was mean. I was just sad, I was sad to see it go, and he gets the meeting adjourned line, you know, so it's nice. Dell pulls up and he fires, you know, after, well, of course, after Dracula blows up his partner in the car. Right. He fires point blank at Dracula and it doesn't phase, it doesn't even phase him this time. Yeah. Now, the, hold on a minute. We'll get to, <laughs> we'll come back to that in a little bit. But then, you know, you get the, you know, Andrew, you pointed this out. When, when he turns into a bat there in front of the house, they do the whole old shadow yeah. thing like in the I universe. thought that was pretty cool to add that in. Yeah. But also they shouldn't have because it looked pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it's an old universe. It looks like truck. a cartoon. I mean. Yeah, kind of like, uh, you know, Lugosi and, well, that's more like uh, uh, Chaney Jr. and Son of Dracula. But the vampire brides are actually pretty creepy and uh, Rudy's line of, Where you going, Rudy? I'm in the goddamn club, aren't I? That's one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. Besides the Nards. Besides the Nards one, of course. That's my favorite. We see Rudy take out two of the brides, but not the third, which is... I know. I mean, they make a big deal, and you're like, okay, what happened to the third chick? Yeah. And she never gets sucked through the portal. There's a cut scene. Well, you see one slide by later. Yeah, but she's already got a stake through. Mm, Well, you have to assume that he staked the other one, because somebody would have been bit... So Dracula flies up in bat form, and as Dell's pulling up, and he shoots him, and it injures him because he's a bat. But, but sunlight doesn't affect him. He's a bat. bat. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't know you. When you go and make a movie, something like this, you've got to say, okay, these are the these rules. are the rules, right? Well, maybe know? like in Hammer's Dracula, when Peter Cushing's playing the phonograph back. 
You know, and it's telling you all the rules yeah. of vampire. Or he like did, in the Twilight series. Shush. He didn't have <laughs> he didn't have concentration when he's the bad. He didn't expect to get shot, but when he was getting shot at before, he did have concentration because he was pointing the gun mm. point blank at it. Mm, maybe too much sight. Uh, yeah, maybe. We'll go. I mean, that's a that's a theory. So Dell, you know, runs up the stairs into the the upper part of the. The, uh, the upper floor of the sporting goods store, and you see Dracula in his half bat form. Uh, it, it's, he it's, looks fat. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I think that I think he looks like an animal. He looks like a dog or something, kind of laying there. You know, it, I, it looks to me like they probably had Rager's upper body up through the floor, oh, and then yeah. you know that's kind of what it looks like. And then the rest was there, some kind of and with some kind of pump or something undulating it. You know, it's it was it was. I thought it was pretty well done. It was awesome. Uh, the the Wolfman blowing up on camera was kind of that was kind of over the top. Yeah. yeah, but none of his guts went anywhere when he exploded. Yeah, it was just it was just kind of weird. It's like how does that work? Yeah, it was it was. I never have really. That was kind of part was just kind. Of, I think that was just to call back to that line. It that whole exchange. You know, the only way to kill a werewolf. Although the whole thing where Rudy takes him out later is is cool but mm. but you know that, that was to set up that but when you're in the in the sporting goods store you see adidas stuff stacked everywhere sean's wearing an adidas jacket mm-hmm. uh burger king's mentioned in the movie uh by horace it's like well, why don't we just do it at burger king if we're going to do it out here in front of the church and not in it right and then you see the burger king is the bride well, coming then- um, Bill brings, brings Burger, Burger King, King to yeah, the roof when they're watching the movie. Yeah, so it's like Burger King and Adidas, <laughs> Monster Squad, brought to you by Burger King and Adidas. The, they, Maybe that's why they had such cool monster toys later in the nineties. Yeah, the Universal Monster Toy. Yeah, might be. Those were cool. Those are the best uh, kid meal toys ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Wolfman magically reassembles. It's you know, it's it's just kind of a bit of hokey, a, bit of a stretch. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Lambert, like that plays Rudy, says when he when he fired the gun at the Wolfman, it was the first time he ever had shot one, and he improvised his line of "bang," and they used that first take. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was it. Uh, the Wolfman thanks him for the bullet. It's it's similar to the end of Werewolf from London, where he actually says "thanks for the bullet" as he dies. <laughs> he tells the cop mm-hmm. as he dies, and it wasn't a silver bullet because. Kurt Siodmak hadn't written the rules in the Wolfman yet. Right. So the creature comes out of the manhole, and I really like the way is is they operate his gills, the way he breathes. Oh, his next sixty seconds of film time. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So and then you know Horace grabs a gun from one of the cops. He goes. He does the old Steven Seagal style on a couple of the cops. He takes his big old hands and. Well, know, again, sixty seconds cracks his neck. So. Uh, you know, Horace gets another great line, you know. My name is Horace. <laughs> Ta-da! Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, Gilman goes down pretty easy, though. Exactly. Yeah. He's the Aquaman of the Monster Mommy Squad. Mommy died first, though. There's a... There, well, yeah, yeah, but he, his was hard fought. Yeah. I'm sorry, but in this movie, the creature is the Super Friends Aquaman. <laughs> Did he ever go through the portal at the end? I don't know. Oh my god! Nah, they probably they, somebody's dissecting him. Uh, if you didn't, the uh, there's actually a deleted scene on the DVD where they the creatures land there and they're somebody's like walking over and pouring 
like goldfish and stuff around him to make it look like he just <laughs> splurted out mm. goldfish and things like that. But it, I guess it just didn't look right, so they cut it. But I actually would have been kind of at least giving him a little little something extra yeah. <laughs> at the end. So Dracula shows up. And he's just got lightning going all around him. And and him controlling the weather is often forgotten. But, I mean, that's from Stoker's novel. Yeah. I mean, when he's on the ship, the Demeter in the ocean, he's causing the storms. And, of course, Gary Oldman, Oldman. goes, Beans! Beans! And you thought Lugosi had a thick accent. That was real, at least. <laughs> well, I beat up on that movie a lot, and I actually like it, but throughout these episodes, I've really, as as uh, Andy Leyland would say, taken the piss out of that one. <laughs> Drac was like mowing through the cops like Christian Bale Batman stuff. I mean, just walking. Boom, 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 you boom. can almost hear, dunt, 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 dunt. By the snapping like, of their necks. Yeah, they're all the snapping of the neck part, not so much, but he's just, they just coming at him, he's snapping their necks and just punching them, and it's pretty cool. He's like the Duncan Rager's the last good Dracula. I'm just going to put that out there. He's the last really good old school Dracula. So he's retro. Yeah, he does. And he zaps scary German guy. What exactly does he zap him with? Is he it, doesn't kill him. Yeah, it's almost like a repulsor ray. <laughs> it was making it make a sound as he did it. <laughs> so. Calling a five-year-old girl a bitch like he does with Phoebe, that's pretty harsh. Phoebe the Phoebe. I, <laughs> I think that I, that one part is just like, wow. I, it, to me, that one part is too harsh. It's a bridge too far. It is. It yeah. is. I, it, I really think it is. It, 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 it's, it, it bothers me a little bit, I'll be honest. And and then when you see on the DVD that, that her scream... As Dracula hisses at her, that's real because they didn't, they had never shown her, Duncan Rager had never been around her when he had the fangs and the contacts in. And when they started the scene, he had his eyes and his mouth closed and they said, scream. And she's like, when? It's like, you'll know when. So you think about this. (laughs) They set that little girl up. (laughs) They set her up. And I understand wanting, I want to understand a director wanting to get an honest reaction, a real reaction. Yeah. But you're talking about, they traumatized that poor little girl. <laughs> this little baby girl. I'm, I'm sorry, but if I was the mother of this little child actress, I would have walked right up and punched that sucker, that director right in the face. He gave him the therapy bill. <laughs> Good call. Well, I don't think she's traumatized as bad as Linda Blair, but yeah, you know, could be. But I... No. If anyone did that, my sister, they would die fast. <laughs> oh, Fred Decker uh, said he didn't want Tom Noonan to smile when Frankie confronts Dracula. You know, he turns around, he grabs Dracula back, back in the neck, and he turns around, and he's smiling at him. And he didn't. Decker didn't like that, but apparently Noonan's like, "Hey, you know, I've I've done, I've done this. I've worn this makeup. I've went through all this. I'm doing what I want, basically." <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but I think Decker was right. But, yeah, but. I don't know, it kind of, I don't know, it makes you just, I, it kind of works for the character, the way he played him. Yeah. Then uh, Drac gets uh, gets a hold of Sean, you know, well, one thing we didn't, I didn't write in my notes is, you know, Dracula gets thrown onto the spike, the mm-hmm. pike in the churchyard that looks pretty cross-like, and you said, well, how did Dracula get himself off of that? Yeah. Uh, 
He used his levitation power. But I guess, granted, I mean, you know, it was sure it was metal, so yeah, it wasn't wood. <laughs> Uh-huh. Like back up, yeah. See now, Peter Cushing killed a guy with the shadow of a windmill in the shape of a cross. I mean, I'm just I'm saying, but well, yeah, but Peter Cushing is badass. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so you see, uh, when Drac- Dracula and Sean are struggling, he gets a hold of Sean, and the vortex is opened and. And everything's getting sucked into it. it. We mentioned it before, but you see one of the, the brides slide by with the stake through Yeah, it's one of the stake ones. Yeah. Uh, one of the cops gets uh, the cops get a hold of Emily and hold her back uh, as all this is going on. One of them's Dick Durock. All geeks know he played Swamp Thing in both movies and the TV show. And he was also the first on the Incredible Hulk TV show. That famous episode where the Hulk fought an older... Gamma radiated monster. Mm. That's a really good one. Uh, I don't know if I've seen that episode. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, you gotta watch that. <laughs> We've got it in there. Now it's cool. It's a cool wrap up. But how in the world did Van Helsing come out of that portal to grab Dracula? <laughs> to me, the worlds, the you know, the sectioning off between worlds, the vortex, yeah. and it, it was were weakened. weakened. It, yeah, it could come through. It yeah. could have only been like ten minutes though, in, in his own time. How he was seeing it all. Maybe. Like 10 minutes later, whoa, I'm back. You know, when Phoebe loses Frankie, it's another it's another E.T.-like moment, but it, it, it really works. It throws her little scraps. The one other thing about Van Helsing, you know, he gives a thumb up sign, thumbs up sign to Sean. Yeah. Did that um, mean anything in 1887? Yeah, that was, in 1887, <laughs> did that? It was flipping off that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's it. He, he pulls, he flips Dracula, he flips Sean off as he's, you little sucker, I did, you take all the credit for this, I did it. Fuck you! Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so, the rap at the end is just horrible. I mean, it's awful late 80s white man's rap. It's, uh, it's just awful. I mean, that, that, that you know, Run DMC made rap you know, and, and, and Aerosmith made rap accessible to the masses. That was great. But then there was just all these awful people that had no idea how to do it. And this is one of those cases. It's, it's awful. And, and and I usually play the music from the end of the movie at the end of the episode. I don't even think I'm going to do that here because I don't think anybody deserves that. No. It's, <laughs> it's like listening to Eddie Murphy sing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think it's even worse than that. So, there was a TV series. Don Johnson? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don Johnson. Art Beater. Yeah. Was looking for a heartbeat. Yeah. He sounded like you're constipated. And so did he. <laughs> so, there's actually... The, the, what I, the point I was trying to make, this movie, an influence on this movie that's not mentioned on the DVDs, has to be... The Steven Spielberg kid group movie. I mean, the 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 kids in E.T., the Goonies, which was produced by Spielberg, directed by Richard Donner, but produced by Spielberg. The team of kids aspect is straight from those films. The Frankenstein fever relationship is 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 pretty straight from E.T. The horror element and the life threatening danger from the kids and 
It's similar to the Goonies. And even Sean's mom, Emily, was the same mom from the Goonies. You know, that's fine. I mean, but I think that I just, you can't watch that. If you watch the Goonies and watch this, you're just kind of like, oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know. Um, And honestly, you could have, I mean, different movies, different, you know, different setup. But you could have taken that same cast and just flipped them and it would have been fine. Right, right, right. Rudy, no. No. no, there's not. Well, but they had uh, Josh Brolin. No, instead of, right. That's instead what I'm saying. I mean, you know, not and a he's dr- Thanos now. Yeah, I mean, not a direct <laughs> correlation, but you know what Whoa, I mean. You know, damn. same type of actor. He went from that to this, and he was also Jonah Hex in that. I still haven't seen it, but it's a much maligned movie. But anyway, one thing about this movie for sure, it would not be made this way today. No. Mm-mm. There's no way this movie would be made with with the kids There's cursing. No yeah, there there isn't. I mean, it would either be it would either be the kids would all be aged up to like late teens and or college age kids, mm-hmm. or it would be made for the and it would be R rated and they would be getting killed and everything, or it would be made for the Disney Channel and have like no teeth at all. Right. There's like there's no in between anymore. Uh, that 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 era's of movie making is is gone for now. It's just no way, and and that I think that's one reason why they had such a hard time marketing it. Yeah, uh, because, it doesn't fit into a nice little cubby hole. Yeah, uh, and one thing that really got me in the marketing campaign is they stupidly relied on Ghostbusters, which I mean Ghostbusters was hugely popular, but three years earlier it's like you know who to call when you have ghosts, but who do you call when you have monsters? It's like what if. Part of this movie makes you think of Ghostbusters, really, other than yeah. supernatural element to it. I mean, it's not even the same type of humor, really. You don't have vacuum cleaners to suck them in there. Right. I mean, it's, it's not the same kind of thing. So, I mean, the marketing was just, I think, really bad. and, and But in a way, it, it was probably kind of difficult for them to figure out how to market mm-hmm. it. Because, you know, like they said, like the people that worked on it said, you know, if they marked it to the straight horror crowd. They're like, oh, a bunch of kids are in it. And then it was probably too scary for just the kid crowd. Yeah. So it, it still amazes me that Universal passed on this because they're all the time, you know, these back and forth battles with the estates of Lugosi and, and not so much Karloff, but Lugosi and the Cheneys and everything. And if they had, not that I want to see the original guys get marginalized or lost, but you would think just even from a greed standpoint, they'd say, hey, we have new versions of monsters. Yeah. We can have these guys sign contracts and sign their likeness over and I have to fool with these these heirs anymore, you know. There was one other Monster Squad. There was a TV show in the 70s called The Monster Squad and Fred Grandy that played uh, Gopher on Love Boat, oh, okay. uh, he played a character that accidentally brought wax sculptures of Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman to life. And they became superheroes. What? <laughs> it's a very... I've never seen it. Brian Hyler is a huge fan of it. Uh, of, of Plaid Stallions is a huge fan of it. And How he, long was it on? I think just a season or two. Uh, I wanted to get it when it came out on DVD. It was in a very limited DVD run and then gone. And now it goes for like crazy amounts of money on Amazon right. and eBay and everything. So... But it, it's got, he, there were several Batman actors on it. Julie Newmar was on it. It's yeah. just got that 60s Batman vibe, vibe to it. Yeah. So, so I think the, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a comic that's 
somewhat related to the idea of a monster squad. Hi folks, Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaikin pen, Guy Gurker, Collateral Damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming a nearly godlike bee. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which will easily make up for not covering collateral damage. Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? No, they just streamlined it, so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. Okay, we're back, and for our comic, our final comic from the the crypt of the House of Frankenstein, the Dusty Long Box, we're going to pull Super Friends number 10 from February, March 1978. Well, actually, we're going to pull the best of DC number 3 from January, February 1980, because that's the comic, the version I have, the digest. The story is called The Monster Menace. The cover was by Ramona Fraden and Bob Smith. Story, E. Nelson Bridwell. Art, Ramona Fraden and Bob Smith. Lettering, Ben Oda. Coloring, Anthony Tallin. Editor, Larry Hama. The Super Friends introduced their new apprentices, the Wonder Twins, Zan and Jaina, to their old friend, Professor Carter Nichols. Nichols agrees to let the twins stay with him in their downtime from super training. Later, Zan and Jaina are practicing their powers in the woods outside Carter's estate, when they spy an attractive blonde woman being pursued by creatures they recognize from Earth TV broadcasts. Monsters. These monsters bear striking resemblances to Dracula, a female vampire, a werewolf, a mummy, and the Frankenstein monster. A sixth monster bears a passing resemblance to the Phantom of the Opera and is covered in a large purple cloak. Using their Exorian shape-shifting powers, the Wonder Twins rescue the woman and whisk her back to the Hall of Justice. They and the Super Friends learn the woman is named Cherry Mott. She relates that the monsters were trying to stop her from claiming her grandfather's inheritance. Two valuable gold objects said to possess magical powers. One is hidden in the black caverns outside of Gotham, the other in the Barracuda Deeps. Batman Robin, Wonder Woman, and the twin space monkey Gleek head for the caverns. Superman, Aquaman, and the twins are soon off to the Barracuda Deeps leaving Miss Mott at the Hall of Justice. In the caverns, our heroes encounter the vampires, the mummy, and the werewolf. The dynamic duo discover these vampires can actually assume the shape of bats, but utility belt flares force them back into their original forms. 
While fending off the werewolf, one woman is stunned to learn the mummy is able to control his wrappings like elastic tendrils. Bleak uses his own stretchy tail in an assist, and the rebounding friends make short work of the monsters. Bleak then finds Mott's treasure, a golden ring. The other contingent of heroes run into the remaining monsters, and Superman finds the Frankenstein-like monster to be much stronger than he expected. With Zan's shape-shifting help and some super breath, he manages to overcome the brute. Aquaman bows the Gilman-like creature off-panel. The purple cloaked monster fires a green flame at Superman that weakens him like kryptonite. Still unfamiliar with earth animals, Jaina accidentally transforms into a goldfish, but somehow blocks the green beam, allowing Superman to plant a haymaker on the phantom lookalike. Aquaman surfaces with the defeated creature and the other golden item, a familiar looking lantern. Both groups of super friends bring their defeated foes back to the Hall of Justice. I feel like saying that like Ted Knight. Back at the Hall of Justice. <laughs> when Superman hears of the ring, he quickly deduces what is going on. Removing the purple cloak from the Phantom reveals him in the uniform of the Green Lantern Corps. The otherworldly Emerald Gladiator tells the shocked Justice Leaguers that he disguised himself for fear of Earth's criminals knowing of the Corps' weakness to the color yellow. Using Interlac, the universal language, How convenient. I thought it was love. Love. The language of love. <laughs> he introduces the monsters by their proper heroic names. Frankenstein is Superior Man. The werewolf is known as Fangclaw. Due to his elastic wrappings, the mummy is Stretch Man. The amphibious creature is called Subsea Man. And the vampire couple are known as Batwoman and Batman. After quick introductions, the Green Lantern gets the heroes back on track. Cherry Mott, or Char Yamat, as she is really named, must be stopped. But it's too late. She has removed the gold plating from the ring and power battery, and now wields the weapon of the Green Lanterns. Because she is a villain in a Bronze Age comic book, Char monologues how this ring and battery once belonged to Sinestro, the renegade Green Lantern. Before the Guardians of the Universe stripped him of his power, Sinestro took advantage of an ion storm surrounding Earth to hide a duplicate power ring and battery there. By plating it in gold, it would be undetectable to the Guardians or any Green Lanterns. She learned all this via her convenient telepathic powers. Superman distracts Char, telling her that it was during this same Ion Storm that Green Lantern Abin Sur passed his ring to the League's own Green Lantern. While she is occupied, the Wonder Twins turn into a yellow marmoset and yellow fog, while the visiting Green Lantern has time to recharge his ring on Sinestro's battery. In a battle of willpower, Char is no match, and GL easily defeats her. Their lesson of not judging by appearances learned by both the Wonder Twins and the Super Friends, their new friends and foes depart for their distant world. So there you go. I thought it was an awesome story. Did you really? Yeah, seriously. Well, good. I wasn't being sarcastic. Well, good. Cover artwork by Mona Fraden is nice, but... The coloring is just, it's so dark and gray and muddy around the, the monsters. You can't even tell they're monsters. No, uh-uh. I mean, they almost look very close to just being shapes towering over them, not necessarily... Yeah. You know, I, at a quick glance. I mean, you know, of course, when you look at it, you can see that... You know, I think if they kept them the proper colors, I think that would have helped sell it. I mean, you know, but... The Wonder Twins had just debuted, 
on the TV show that season and in the Super Friends comics. According to Mike Amaz- Mike's Amazing World, this issue been on sale November 14th. You know, I, I don't mean to question Mike's Amazing World, but we've covered two comics here that came out right after Halloween that were Halloween-themed. It seems kind of weird that they wouldn't put them out before, but maybe they were running late or something. Yeah. I don't know. So the so if the you know the usual I don't know what year the season started, but probably in September. So the Wonder Twins had just been on TV for about two months, and they had just uh, taken over from Wendy and Marvin in the comic. E. Nelson Bridwell wrote the entire Super Friends series, and he was DC's resident historian. I mean, he was the expert on the Superman mythology. And he was always spilling the Superfriend comic with, quote-unquote, real continuity. He, he, it's almost like he had a compulsion to make the Superfriends jive with Earth-1 continuity. Like, he explained that Wendy was uh, either the niece or the great-niece of Detective Harvey Harris, who had trained Batman. And he explained that Marvin's name was Marvin White, and that he was actually the son of the Diana Prince that Wonder Woman got her name from. Mm. Wonder Woman got her name from a nurse of Diana right. Prince. She basically bought her name. Remember that? Right. That that's He was their son. I thought it was going to be like Perry White's son. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. That, <laughs> it's a, well, he might have been wanting to, you know, the Super Friends was writ- written for... A younger audience. I mean, it's not a right. as serious audience. Let's put it right. that way. And he was trying maybe to legitimize what he yeah. was responsible for. Yeah. I mean, that's how I, you know, read that. He was also an editor and associate editor for for first Mort Weisinger on Superman and then Julius Schwartz and when he took over the Superman books. But a lot of the writers that he worked with said he would find places to stick little, like, Kryptonian factoids and things like that in there. He was. It's like he just he had to or something. It's kind of like like living with you. <laughs> it's kind of like doing this show. <laughs> Every other comment is something with superheroes. Uh, but I mean, it is. I mean, you are constantly saying, "Oh, did you know?" Blah, 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 blah. You know. Well, he was one of the first fans turned pros. Although he had worked for EC Comics and stuff, but I mean, he was probably. You know, one of the first ones that that had a you know quite a bit of knowledge of just pop culture in general that that came to comics and was a fan of comics themselves. But but you know, roping in Carter Nichols, uh, Carter Nichols was the uh, the scientist that sent Batman and Robin and sometimes Superman back through time back in the fifties. I remember those. Yeah. So like when they met the Three Musketeers. Yeah. 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 So. Um, they're speaking, the twins, Wonder Twins, everybody in this book are speaking interlac. That's actually the intergalactic language that was uh, brought up in the Legion of Superheroes. So Why didn't they put like little things around it like they do now? Like now they put like little, little brackets. brackets. Little brackets, I don't know. And at first they like stutter and then later on they like got full sentences and stuff. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. If they're speaking that language and why are they stuttering? Well, I think at first they're speaking English, and then later they're speaking English. Yeah, but even when they're first speaking, I mean, I noticed that too, right after they say, oh, well, we can switch to Interlac, and the first panel or two after that are still disjointed, and then all of a sudden, la-da-da. They're they're quick studies. 
What can we say? I've always been a fan, fan of Ramona Fraden's deceptively simple, clean style. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was great on uh, Aquaman. She had a long run on Aquaman, which Rob's been covering over at the Aquaman Shrine. And, and she's a very gracious lady. We met her at a comic show. Yeah. Uh, many years yeah. ago. I still kick myself that I didn't get a sketch from her, though. I know, I know. Yeah, big goober. But, well, we were young and poor, just got married. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. But uh, I, I never was a big fan of Bob Smith's inks, but particularly on, on her. I think he, I think his style's too loose for her pencils. I think she could have been served by a better inker on this series. You get to see the monsters. They're, they're, they're pretty standard generic versions of the universal designs you know they could easily have been used on a uh halloween costumes to get around the, the Wolfman looks like larry yeah and he's even got the green suit on yeah the the creature the only one i really don't like the creature looks like a frog looks like he's got a bra on <laughs> uh, okay he's got frogman boobs uh uh it's kind of funny because Gleek shows up in, in mid-story, and, and Batman makes a note of this, like, where have you been, Gleek? Where have you been hiding? It's like, it's like did, did Frayden forget to draw him, and, and Bridwell just fix it in the dialogue? Or it makes you kind of wonder, but... Something I got before that, on the TV show of Super Friends, did he ever turn into, like, tornado? I thought he could just turn into water stuff. I know. Not a tornado. I mean, I don't, I don't remember that. Yeah, he does turn into... I hadn't even thought of that. He turns into a tornado. Yeah. yeah. It had to be some... From and my, then they show... Well, they had Samurai on there to turn into a tornado. <laughs> then they have um, Jaina mid-transformation. It just looks wrong. Well, that's just how they illustrated her change. No, but he's got his head inside the tornado. Well, they always... Well, they would show his face on... I know. Stuff's weird. But um, he tended... Bridwell tended to play the character straighter than the cartoon did, particularly Batman and Robin utility belt weapons. They didn't... They didn't pull out items that would would make Adam West go, oh, come on. You know, <laughs> that's on the Super Friends they did a lot of times. Pull out a video game controller. Yeah. Uh, the mummy having stretchy bandages is, is I thought interesting. it was cool. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. They, um, apparently, that must be where they got, I know this is off topic, but on Ben 10 they did that. The oh, mum, really? The mummy could do that. Oh, really? That's what they did, and his name was... At first, he's like, maybe I should call myself Stretchy Man or something. Oh. Well. That, I'm serious. Well, those, I remember all those I Ben 10 guys were comic fans, so it's quite possible they read that. See, that's why I like it, because I'm Ben 10. The man, like, of, man of Action, is that the guys that created Ben 10 or something like I that? I can't remember, but that was one of my favorite characters. He started out as a villain, and then Ben scanned him, and he could become... Oh, I remember your action figure of that. Yeah. yeah, the stretchy bandages would have made the mummy's demise in the Monster Squad go quite a bit differently, I think. Uh-huh. Oh, that, he would have won. <laughs> I mean, he could have just taken the arrow and... Yeah. You know, Batman takes the vampire out pretty easy. I... Kind of weren't they? Aren't they supposed to be super strong? That's, well, but remember, they're not really vampires. Oh well, yeah, that's true. Batman always takes them out one punch. Then with the Superman and Aquaman and the twins meet the uh, other group of monsters, and they've got some space age jet boat. You know, maybe it should have been colored green. It might have made a little more sense. You know, because it could have been a ring construct. Um, Superman has. Uh, Zan changed into a wave, and he freezes it to to hit the monster, which is kind of a neat use of their powers, but I'm not really thinking that wouldn't Superman's punch still be more powerful than than that? 
One would think. Uh, why didn't he just like get on top of the monster and freeze him then? Mm, I mean, that wouldn't even work because it would stop. It wouldn't keep on going. Right. When they show, when Aquaman pulls up the Green Lantern power battery, it looks tiny. It's a little small looking, but... It's even kinda... when Superman's holding it. Well, and there's my whole point about this. I thought with the Green Lantern um, ring and power battery... At least at this point, you had to have willpower and be fearless. And, you know, how was this woman able to operate it? I think that's more of a more recent thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you know, like, well, like, uh, what was it? Uh, Jeff Johns made it to where when, when Green Arrow used it, it was about, you know, it hurt. Like, it, was on yeah, off. yeah, and he, like, got, had a chest pain and. Right. Yeah, you know, but you and he asked Kyle, it's like, does it always hurt like that? And he's like, every time or something, which I think was kind of ripping off Wolverine from the yeah. movie. <laughs> when he popped his claws, does it hurt? Every time. Um, but yeah, that, I think that was, that's more of a new. Okay. I was wondering about that. It's weird because they don't even show Aquaman fighting him. That's one of the things where he's like the character that doesn't matter. I mean, all they show, oh, look, I got him. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's why I put that in the notes. I mean, you know, here was Aquaman's chance to, to fight sign. the creature from the yeah. Black Lagoon, and they they blew it. You know, and his, um, frog boobs or whatever. Yeah, they they could have they could have you know cut out a few panels of Superman fighting the Frankenstein monster and cut to Aquaman fighting the creature. Yeah, they even have a scene where his fish is just like this, and Superman's going. Through. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, you know, Superman sells more comics, I guess. When when they. You know, they pull the cloak off the, the alien Green Lantern, who never gets a name, by the way, which is really weird. They give, Yeah, I was wondering. They that. give all these other characters their real superhero names, but they never give this Green Lantern his alien, you know, yeah. name or something. Maybe his name's Green Lantern. My name is La'on Cha'ani. No, it's Bob. <laughs> it's Bob. <laughs> It'd been funny if it was some kind of Kryptonian slash Martian spelling of Lon Chaney or something since yeah. you look like the Phantom. <laughs> you know, the the uh, GL's, his reasoning for disguising himself doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if he was like, well, I, I thought the, since you had a Green Lantern, I thought your, your, uh, your Earth villains might know about my weakness, so that's why I disguised myself. Well, why didn't every Green Lantern disguise himself? True. You know, and why didn't he come looking for Hal Jordan? You know, it's like, hey... Because Hal Jordan knows how to get around the Earthlings. Because um, he's never been around them before. He doesn't know how capable we are. Yeah, but why didn't... I'm saying, why didn't this Green Lantern... Like, you know, like... like Call a, up his comrade in When arms. a cop investigates something in another county, he goes to the cops in that county. Mm -hmm. We already had the City. monsters. Well, I guess so. Yeah, exactly. Because it's in the script. Don't be oh. dissing on the story, man. I love this. Oh, good. I think I read that to you a long time ago, um, when you know, back before you could read. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the monsters as hero thing may have slightly been influenced by that Monster Squad TV series because it, it it may even have still been on at this point. If not, it was just a year or two earlier, right? So it could have possibly influenced it. Fang Call is actually a pretty decent name for a werewolf hero. The yeah, rest, but it, the rest not so much. Yeah. <laughs> Superior Man's okay. Stretchy Man, I hate. Sub-Sea Man, don't like. Batman and Batwoman, that was pretty cool. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Remember what I said about Bridwell's continuity compulsion? 
I give you Exhibit A, Sinestro. <laughs> I mean, some of the, the flashback panels are like direct swipes of Gil Kane's original Green Lantern panels. I mean, they, and I'm sure that came, I'm sure Bridwell's like sent her like photocopies of like the pages, draw this. You know? Yeah. When Hal Jordan gets the ring, it looked like this. When Sinestro got banished, it looked like this. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I can buy Jaina becoming a yellow marmoset. But Xan as a yellow fog is approaching, you know, shape of an ice jet, you know, level. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It doesn't make, it's jumping a shark. I guess yellow snow was out of the question. (laughs) What if if that little thing just peed in it? (laughs) (laughs) They could do that. Now, all all kidding aside, the, the twist in this story actually does work pretty well. And even the Sinestro part isn't, it isn't telegraphed a million miles away. I mean, when I saw... Sinestro and all that in this story when I first read it I'm like what? I mean come out but it you know it works. I thought it was cool how they did twist. I wasn't expecting that. Right. I thought the monsters would be like from another dimension and then they would end up sending them back and the girl would get her treasure and all that stuff. But yeah. no I, it like blew my mind that's why I like it. I was like whoa and then I read the the moral at the end and I was like oh that makes sense. I was like this is a really awesome story. Well, I mean, you know, he Bridwell, he did always manage to deliver a fairly smart story that young kids could enjoy, or, you know, older readers, too. It, it's too bad he didn't consult. He, he only, he, too bad he didn't write the TV show. He only was a consultant on the first few oh. seasons. But, um, you know, the, and of course, like Andrew said, the lesson's a good one for kids to learn in any decade. I wish they would do that now. You know, and all in all, it was a fun little story, and... And, you know, to me, we've kind of come full circle for me and Cindy where we did that Superman story that had Dracula and Frankenstein. This is a whole lot better story yeah. in a kid's comic book. Right. It makes a lot more logical sense than that mess did. Uh, <laughs> so, I really think you still need to buy me something nice for that. <laughs> that and the Spider-Man. Well, oh, no. That's, by night, that's the reason I drive the good car. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay, but it didn't really make sense. Oh. I thought it was cool to see Spider-Man actually fight a werewolf. Yeah. Well, I think that'll just about do it. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of sorry to see... Uh, October come to a close. Yeah, because we really had a lot of fun with this. And Andrew to go away. Yeah. Sorry, bud. We'll have you back on at some point in the future. Yeah, because I'm awesome. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> uh, you live here. Uh <laughs> I have to listen to them every night. Yeah. I want to thank everybody. We've had a lot of good response to this series, and 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 we'll probably revisit uh, some, maybe even revisit some horror things before Halloween comes around next year. Uh, but uh, we'll definitely do this again. If, you know, it's, as my dad always said, "Good Lord's willing, and the creeks don't rise." But uh, <laughs> but I'd like to give an extra special shout out to Derek M. Cook of Monster Kid Radio and the 1951 Down Place podcasts. Uh, those are both uh, monster podcasts, obviously. 1951 Down Place is a hammer podcast. And uh, on both of those shows, uh, they played our trailer. Uh, Derek mentioned our episodes on the Monster Kid show itself, and he also you know, promoted it on Facebook and and its page, and we really do appreciate it. And if you're wanting a uh, uh, weekly or monthly fixed, uh, twice weekly for Monster Kid, fix of uh, 
monster goodness, then definitely t- check out those two podcasts. They're great. I really enjoy them. There's a great variety of stuff on there, and you just can't beat them. So thanks, everybody, for listening. As far as more Halloween content, we actually do have have some more because as we record this, Rob Kelly and I are going to record a special supplemental semi-crossover between Fire and Water podcast and Supermates. Uh, it's going to be on the Fire and Water feed, but uh, Rob and I are going to be talking about Avin and Costello meet Frankenstein. We're actually going to do a commentary track on that because, you know, you know, because having a commentary track by like a real film historian, who wants that? You need two nerds to talk about it. So, <laughs> so you got that you can check out. And by the time this this is up, that will probably be up. I'm pretty sure. I don't know the exact date, uh, but uh, definitely before Halloween's come and gone. And also, uh, there's a pretty good chance there'll be a new Power Records episode with a Halloween theme with me and Rob. So. More uh, Supermates and Power Record related Halloween goodness out there. So, got any comments on this? Or, uh, you know, if you got a movie you'd like to hear us talk about, or a horror themed comic for maybe next year, you know, go ahead or and start. Or you want me to come on here? Or you want to hear Andrew yeah. again? Call, you know, send us a line, uh, Supermates Podcast at gmail.com. Or if you have a favorite story that you want me to blow the logic in, you know, I that too. <laughs> yeah. She does. Story. Uh, they know. If they listen, they know. Uh, you know, you send a comment, you can drop a comment on Facebook page. You can drop us a comment on our blogspot page, which is supermatescomic.blogspot.com. Just let us know what you think, good, bad, indifferent. Uh, as far as what's up in the next episode, I can't honestly say I know right now. <laughs> so we put so much thought into this. We've got a lot of things cooking and a lot of things in the works. So just stay tuned and thanks for listening and happy Halloween. Bye. Bye. Man's got nards. <laughs> Had to say it, didn't you? Yep. Favorite line. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. The fictional characters and events mentioned in this show are trademarked and copyright their respective owners. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their owners, and we mean no infringement by either. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Try this. Now you kids gather around. Cause at this house, there is something special going down. <laughs> There's an outdoor kid by the name of Frankenstein. Now the move is right, now take a check, call the nice tonight.
Shit. Yeah, she is. Perhaps we should all go back to my place for some pie. 